The sermon text reading is from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Dan DeCristio. I'm one of the elders here at City Church Eastside. So thankful for you to join us here uh, today. Uh, if you know me, I'm from Pennsylvania the Keystone State, and if you're from the Keystone State, there's a lot to be proud of. The Steelers, the Liberty Bell, Mr. Rogers, but a lot to be ashamed of. The Denora Death Fog, the Centralia Mine Fire, and my personal favorite, Three Mile Island. Netflix just came out with a documentary on that uh, about the partial meltdown of reactor number two, just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, if you know the story, it was way back in the late 1970s, and there was a major oil crisis that was going on. Oil was sky high, and nuclear was going to be our energy savior, get us energy independence. Uh, And I'll tell you, friends, nuclear energy is super clean and super efficient, unless something goes wrong. And it did in March of 1979. If you watch the documentary, you'll see that's an unfortunate expose of misinformation, cover-ups, poor communication, and misunderstanding. The second half of the documentary actually focuses less on the accident itself, rather the cleanup and the unfortunate cover-up as well, too. Enter Rick Parks. Rick Parks a Navy-trained nuclear engineer who is a huge advocate of nuclear energy. You could say that he was zealous for nuclear. Zealous. Mr. Parks, along with others, they led part of the cleanup of Three Mile Island. That particular effort was under a lot of pressure to finish fast because the utility managing that plant needed to get those reactors fired up quickly again, start making more energy, more money. So they took some shortcuts. They took some shortcuts. One of those was using this thing called a polar crane. A polar crane, it was a mechanism that actually lifted the cap off of the reactor and exposed the partially molten core of the reactor, which of course was filled with tons of radioactivity. Now, Rick Parks and others 
fiercely objected to the use of this particular polar crane because it was likely damaged by radioactivity, the krypton gas that was actually in the containment unit. It hadn't been used in years, and if the crane fell and dropped that cap back into the reactor, there could have been a catastrophe on par with Chernobyl. But Bechtel, the company who was responsible for the cleanup, the utility and the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they didn't listen to Rick because, again, it was about getting the job done fast. There were incentives, profit motives that really put public safety at risk. They cast Rick Parks as a fool. They nearly sabotaged him. His house was robbed. He was mad. And so he went public. Rick Parks, along with attorneys from the Government Accountability Project, held a press conference a week or two before they were going to use that polar crane to lift off the cap. And, of course, outrage in the public ensued. And the NRC, actually through pressure, chose not to use the polar crane, likely adverting a major disaster. They actually then just tested the crane, and it failed. So it would have been. A big mess. So Rick Parks, who is he? What do we know him as? We know him as what we call a whistleblower. A whistleblower. Now whistleblowers are disruptors. They're truth tellers. A lot of times they are angry. As the quote from our bulletin this morning says, they don't do well in this world. They don't do well, especially when their prognostications go against conventional wisdom and popular opinion. And many times, friends, that conventional wisdom and popular opinion is not good. Maybe it is to maintain profit, power, or control over someone or something. It can be corrupt and a sinful practice. And the whistleblower is angry, they're a truth teller, and they're calling that out. They're calling that sin out to demand what? Justice. Rightness. I named Rick Parks. I'm sure you could name a bunch more whistleblowers as well, too. Well, how about Jesus? How about Jesus, friends? In our text this morning that Alicia read, we see Jesus pretty new to the scene. This is early in, in John 2. He really just got his ministry started. And he's doing what? Jesus is going absolutely bananas. Absolutely bananas on the merchants and the money changers in the temple courts. And then making, as Alicia read at the end, quite a claim about himself. So what's going on? What's going on? So today, let us encounter Jesus the whistleblower and his zeal for the temple, his cleansing of the temple, and then our living as the temple. So those are our three points today. Let's see what's behind his zeal, cleansing, and then our living as the temple. So to understand this text this morning, we sort of need to understand the temple. The temple and what is its purpose. So let's go all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning of Genesis 2.15. It says this. We'll put it on the screen here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work and keep it. So what's going on way back here in Genesis? And how, how does this relate to the temple that we're talking about today? 
Well, friends, this, of course, in Genesis is before the fall, before rebellion. Man has a great relationship with God. There's a great relationship. They're interacting with one another. They're living here together, communing in Eden, which is Hebrew for the word delight. This is the place that God is resting from His work, and He's dwelling. Worship of God is awesome. It's pure. It's clean. There's no resistance. Then what happens? Sin, right? It's corrupted. It's corrupted. Adam and Eve, who have everything they need, they don't have enough, according to themselves. They have the one thing, or want the one thing, that God told them not to have, which was the knowledge of the good and evil, and what looks right in their own eyes. They rebelled, and in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve were busted. God blew the whistle, if you will. Probably the first whistle blow in the Bible. But, and this is supremely uh, important, friends, is that God provided a way for them to come back. It's like what Annie sang in the song today. A way to come back. He tells the serpent that he'll eventually be destroyed in the future. And in the now, he says this in Genesis 3.21. And we'll put it on the screen. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So what's going on there? It's important. If there are garments of skin, we have to assume that some animal was killed to be able to get those skin. Uh, the, the blood had to been shed. This is really the first example of the sacrificial offering for sin, and it happened here in the Garden of Eden. So now let's fast forward here. Let's fast forward throughout Scripture. Time passes. The Jews end up enslaved, and of course they're rescued by God via Moses. The Jews at the time, of course, were a moral and civil disaster area. So what does God do via Moses? He gives them the Ten Commandments, moral law. And then shortly thereafter, God gives them uh, a vision and commandments associated with creating a tabernacle, a place for God to dwell with the people. One commentator says this, and we'll put it on the screen. First, the tabernacle is seen as a tented place for Israel's divine king. He is enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost holies of holies. The other symbolic dimension is Eden. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God does what? He dwells. And various details of the tabernacle suggest it as a mini Eden. Thus, God's dwelling in the tabernacle is what? A step toward reconciliation. And, rec- and restoration. <clears throat> so this tabernacle, it was, it was portable. You could sort of like throw it up on your, your shoulder, if you will. And this portable tabernacle then turned into a somewhat sort of permanent-ish uh, temple. And that, of course, happened during King Solomon's reign. Like the tabernacle, the, the temple was this place in Jerusalem where Jews, and listen to this, even Gentiles... Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles were known as God-fearers. They came, they flocked to pray, worship God, and offer sacrifices for their sin. To do what? To be brought back into relationship, maybe for the first time. And this is super important. 
The temple was God's address on earth. Think about that. It's God's address on earth. It was the connection to the people. Inside the temple was this thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where the sacrificial blood was spread to atone for the people's sins. And again, the people would come and flock to the temple on Passover. The Israelite families would bring a lamb. The Gentiles, the God-fearers like you and me, would come into the temple courts where they were allowed to to be with their animals to again be forgiven and return to a right relationship with God. This happened generation after generation, Passover to Passover. So enter Jesus. Enter Jesus from John 2.13. We'll put it up on the screen here for you. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is where I want us to stop for a second. I want us to pause here and really put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. Sort of experience and see what Jesus sees and feel what he feels. And And before we do this, I want us to sort of think about our own lives. Think about our own lives. I mean, how many of you had a place, you know, growing up? that you loved, maybe it was a fun experience or place in college that you had, maybe it's a beach or a city, some, some place that's dearly important to you, a place of rest, of good memories. You know, for a lot of folks that have been here at City Church for a long, side, or a long time, especially the men, you know, you may remember going to Manmaker you know, out there to visit uh, Greg Birch in Colorado and how much of a a special place that was. We used to call it a a thin place. We felt closer to God. Just think about that. What is that place for you? Now imagine you return to that place many, many years later and it was a mess. Thank you. It was a mess. Well-timed sneeze. It was a mess I mean, it was run down or maybe torn down or maybe like George Bailey's Bedford Falls. It became corrupt. It became Pottersville. How did that make you feel? Probably made you feel sad. Maybe you did a little bit of research. Like, why did this place just, you know, go to hell in a handbasket? Or maybe then you read about the the people or, or the policies, the corruption that led to the fall of this particular place. How did that make you feel? Angry, right? Angry. Like Alicia, she was praying this morning. Sadness, and then anger. Well, imagine here, friends, Jesus, the Son of God, returning to his Father's house, a house of prayer, a house of worship, and especially important to us all here in this room, a place of mercy and grace where it is access, where reconciliation with the Father of Heaven happens. Jesus is zealous for this house, His Father's house, because He of all people knew exactly what its purpose was and what it represented for the Jew and the Gentile. But now, this place of peace and recon- reconciliation is being what? Is being corrupted by a bunch of people who's leveraging profit, power. Before you entered the place to worship God, to serve God, you actually had to serve them. And you served them with money. 
You served them with money. You actually had to, to serve the priests and money changers before you could serve God. There was a stumbling block in place, friends, in that relationship that was supposed to be good and pure. So what did that look like? What actually happened? Why was Jesus so angry? What was going on? Well, the priests controlled the temple. They controlled the temple. They were called to work and keep it, just like Adam was called to work and keep the garden. And many times when the people would come in with their sacrifices, they would reject it, actually. They would reject it. And they would deem that sacrifice or that animal for sacrifice unacceptable. So it forced them to actually have to buy a new animal in the temple. It's a racket. It's sort of like you can't bring food into the uh, theater, you know, to watch a movie. And then you have to buy the popcorn and the food at the theater. And it's what, like three times as expensive as you would buy it at Kroger or Publix. It's sort of the same thing is going on. But this is in God's house that this is happening. And even more so, you had to pay them in the right currency, the temple currency. So think about the Jews and the, or excuse me, more so the Gentiles and the pilgrims who were coming from far off. And they had their own currency before they could actually buy the pigeons and the chickens and the, I don't think it was chickens, but we'll just, you know, the animals making up new things here today. The chickens and the cats and the lions, tigers and bears. Lots of, it was a buffet of animals. Before they could buy that stuff, they had to exchange their money with the money changers. And there wasn't a market-based exchange rate at this time. It was whatever that money changer wanted to charge you for your currency. And they ripped them off blind. These are people that are coming to experience God maybe for the first time. And they're getting ripped off in God's house. It was super corrupt. This place was rife with sin. And the priests were in on it. They got a cut of the money. Are we surprised that Jesus was so mad? Hell no. Hell no. Absolutely. Earlier this year, friends, we were training up our deacons and they went through theology and, you know, being rooted in the gospel and shepherding. But one very interesting exercise we went through, and, and I believe this came from some work that Mike and Kirsten did at the, the Allender Center, was that we were to name our hell no. And our heaven yes. And we were to name, what is our hell no and our heaven yes? And the heaven yes is sort of a kingdom vision. It's a, it's a picture of justice, of shalom, of flourishing, of, of rightness. You know, we asked, you know, what does that look like for you to bring that maybe into city kids? What does that look like? to be brought into racial reconciliation, into the schools, into neighborhood communities, into families? What, is, what does that look like to bring shalom into that and restoration, peace, and justice? Let's dream about that. But the second thing was we need to name our hell no. And the hell no is the corrupted thing. It's the thing that's getting in the way of God's design, of those particular things flourishing and doing well. It's the stumbling block. It's the thing that makes you righteously angry. Well, Jesus here is angry. He's ticked off. He's saying, hell no, you're not going to turn my father's house into a den of robbers. This is a place of peace and reconciliation and connection. Not this corrupt marketplace. His anger burns hot. So if you're one of the 
guys there selling chickens and pigeons and, you know, and whatevers. And what are you thinking? What are you thinking when Jesus comes in making a whip of cords coming after you? First off, you're probably like, what's gotten into this guy? <laughs> like, holy moly, what's gotten into this guy? But really important note here, Jesus wasn't kicked out of the temple. You know, there wasn't like the temple bodyguard, the temple heavy, the temple goon throwing them out. No, absolutely not. They didn't fight back. What did they do? The remaining Jews in the room, in the temple courts, they asked him a question. They asked him a question. So query, what sign do you show for uh, for us doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? They didn't kick him out. They didn't fight back. They asked Jesus a question. Strange, right? Well, why did they just ask him a question? Because they knew he was right. They knew that he was absolutely right because as it says in Romans 1, they were suppressing the truth. They chose God over money in this situation. And like all socially acceptable sins out there, this behavior was likely normalized for many, many years. Maybe hell no became, "Mm, well, maybe, Mm, maybe in this situation. It's easy to do. It's easy to do for them. It's easy to do for us because that particular sin, that particular injustice, it benefited them. And some of these folks in the room, they were priests. They were Levites. They knew the Scripture. They knew that this was coming. Let's just read Malachi 3. Read this. Many years before Jesus hit the scene, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of coming? Who can stand when he appears, when he is ticked off? I add, for he is a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi and refine them. So let's pause here for a moment. I want us to hit and sort of drink in the quality of Jesus' anger. The quality of Jesus' anger, sort of what it is and what it does. This is important for us. You know, many times in Scripture we see a comparison between God's anger, His righteousness, His justice, and it being compared to what? A fire. Compared to a fire. And one quality of fire, it's interesting, a fire can consume, but it also can refine. John Piper says this, uh, and I'll skip around a little bit. Uh, He is a refiner's fire. Jesus is a refiner's fire, and that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like the fire of an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines, it purifies, it melts down silver and gold, separates out the impurities that ruin its value. It burns them up and leaves the silver and gold intact. He is like a refiner's fire. He is like fire, and fire is serious. You don't fool around with it. You don't fool around with it. Jesus' fire... His fiery anger is serious, but even more than that, it is righteous. His fire does not destroy, it actually cleanses. 
It refines like an oil refinery turning unusable sludge into something usable. Whistleblower Jesus isn't about getting people just in trouble or maybe it's about differing opinions or something like that. No, it's about restoration, refinement, truth, justice. That's what his anger is about. It's edifying, building up, not destroying. Now, this event at the temple... Uh, the Gospels and the Gospels, it actually happens twice. It happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and it happens at the end. The Gospels in some way, interestingly enough, are bookended by Jesus doing this work. And it sounds like the people in the temple didn't listen if you had to do it again. And so maybe this text here that we talk about today feels a little bit like a highlight reel or a news reel. And it's like, well, how does this apply to my life? Well, like all things that Jesus does, it is a short-term practical application about what was going on and then a longer-term reality that it was pointing to. Something short-term and long-term here. And so I think it's important for us to examine this for ourselves. And I, I propose we ask ourselves a few questions, three questions here. First, for us friends, is a foundational question, a little bit more theological is that do you and I know that Jesus becomes the temple and we become temples of his spirit? Do you and I sort of really understand that and know that? Jesus becomes the temples and we become temples of his spirit. That's number one. The next two questions are more introspective. Do you and I have a, a, fiery, uh, a fiery zeal for the Lord? Do we have a fiery zeal for the Lord? The final question is, do we have a fiery anger for sin in our own hearts and the sins in this world for injustice? A lot of people complain when I ask questions because they're very long questions and people forget them by the time I get to the end of the question. So I apologize. So think zeal and injustice and temple here. So the first question, the first question about Jesus becoming the temple well, he, he prophesizes this, of course, in, in our scripture this morning. So we'll bring this back up on the screen. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things, for going bananas? Jesus answered, destroy this temple three days, I will raise it up. The Jews says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you crazy? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures that Jesus spoke. <clears throat> so we learned in our first long point there about the temple, right? Learned about the temple, how it was the place that brought the presence of God to the people, you know, the place where God actually dwelled, his address. It was a place of reconciliation, but problem, you know, it was moved around a lot, you know, it, was, it could be destroyed, it required those priests to work and keep it. And oh, by the way, it was corrupt many times as we learned in our scripture here this morning. So for Jesus to solve this insufficiency, this inefficacy, this corruptibility of the temple and the sacrificial system, he had to come and dwell with us first. Again, it was in the new song this morning. It was such a perfect new song that we sang. 
So much of what is in the song is in this here today. Dwell with us first. That's why it says in John 1, uh, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have now seen the glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we have in Jesus the, the perfect, incorruptible image of God. Way better than arcs and seats and lampstands and furniture. Jesus comes and dwells with us. The Hebrew, uh, tra- or the Greek translation of that is tabernacle. He tabernacles with us. But one problem here, of course, things don't go well for whistleblowers. <laughs> things don't go well with whistleblowers. So what happens afterwards? We know that Jesus is then persecuted, hung on a cross, his blood was shed. But what did Jesus say in our text this morning? He will rise again and become the temple. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Him becoming the temple, rising again. But even more so than that, about 50 days later, which, friends, is today. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is Pentecost Sunday. About 50 days after Easter, it's Pentecost. And 50 days after Jesus did this work, He gave us a gift. As it says in Acts 2, 2 through 4, we'll put it on the screen. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of what? Of fire appeared and rested on them. And they were filled with what? The Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with this Spirit? Paul gives us some direction in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. That your body is a temple, is become now a temple through the work of Christ, of the Holy Spirit within you, who is from God. You are not your own. You were bought. You were bought with a price. So glorify God. Glorify Him in your body. In our home, uh, we have uh, uh, sort of a worn-out copy, a couple worn-out copies of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in that book, it talks a lot about uh, the common refrain, you know, God's ultimate rescue plan. God's ultimate rescue plan, if you know that book. Well, uh, we're seeing it here today. We're seeing all of the process and the steps that occurred going all the way back into early Genesis and the temple and the tabernacle. And then Jesus coming, of course, on the scene, his obedience until death and then raised as a perfect and everlasting temple that for us, through faith, gives us new life, new hope. And we become temples of actually his fire, of his spirit. So how should we respond to this reality? This, this gospel here today. How should we respond? And that's where we go to those two additional questions that you probably forgot. The two additional questions. Do you and I have a fiery zeal for the Lord? And do you and I have a fiery anger for sin in us and the injustice in the world? Every day, every day we walk into our temple. We walk into our temple We walk in our temple and we look around our temple, don't we? Sort of see what's there. And we walk into the temple with knowledge of the gospel and knowledge that should compel us to action, to do something in this temple. 
For many years here at City Church Eastside, you may remember, we've talked about the up, out, and the in. The up, out, and the in. Sort of what do we do and relate to God as the up? Sort of what we do and relate to our neighbor and others, the, the out, and to ourselves, the in. So first up, walking into the temple here, up. How's our relationship with God? How are we relating to Him? This knowledge of the gospel should motivate us to a zeal, a burning zeal for the Lord, for worship, thanksgiving, and praise. We don't need to talk about evangelical strategies here because a relationship with God should radiate from us to be, to be a light to the world, a blessing to the nations through our love of God. Secondly, this gospel should motivate us inwardly for some self-examination. For some self-examination, what is the corruption in, in my heart? What is it that I regret? Maybe recently, maybe long ago. What's that stumbling block that's getting in the way of my life to live it abundantly and with peace and shalom and my relationship with God? We should be our own whistleblower, friends. We have the same tension, the battle in our hearts and our souls as what was going on actually in that temple. It's not between Jesus, per se, and a, a money changer, but it's between spirit and flesh. Spirit and flesh. And it says in Galatians here, For the desires of the flesh are opposed to the spirit. They're against the flesh. They're opposed to one another. And finally, we have the third thing. It's the out. After we remove that plank in our eye so we can see clearly, outwardly, the gospel stirs up love and good works. Love and good works to serve our neighbors, our world, to bring shalom. We should ask ourselves, what can I do with the power of Christ to blow the whistle on? What can I do? What can I do to remove the barriers, to, to refine to bring justice. Maybe it's leveraging my time, talent, and treasure. Or what we used to say a lot here at City Church, you know, to bring beauty, peace, and devotion to this world. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a temple. God has put His fiery spirit in you. And even as you sit here today, it might feel like just a lot of smoke or, a lot, or just a little flicker. Maybe you've quenched it by disappointment lately, by stress, by anxiety, by confusion, regret. Maybe that fire is barely burning. You know, it's like a relationship that we're talking about. You know, one of my favorite Jack, uh, uh, Johnny Cash songs, Jackson. And they say they're going to Jackson, you know, because the fire went out. <laughs> You know, the fire is in you. It hasn't gone out. It's not out. It, we can be encouraged to, to fan it into flame. It can be fanned into flame. The, uh, the early apostle Timothy had to hear this from Paul. Second uh, Timothy says this. We'll put it on the screen. For this reason, I remind you to do what? Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. So friends, today, I preach this to you and my own heart. Trust me. Trust me on that. We have been made temples 
of this fire, of this Spirit. And this Spirit is to fire us up for worship and love of the Lord and the church and refine us to renew us as silver and gold. That's what you are. You are valuable. Silver and gold. And that is to then send us outward to do what? To be lights, to be peacemakers, and at times, whistleblowers here in this world. So let us receive that with confidence, conviction, and thanksgiving here this morning. Let us pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, thank you for the fire that you give us. And we remember how you gave us this fire here on Pentecost Sunday. Father God, help stir in us. Uh, Blow on that fire with your breath, Father. Help it burn hot, Lord. Uh, Both to burn away the dross and the corruption in ourselves that our minds would be renewed and live more abundantly, but also to motivate us to do the same out in the world, to be a blessing to the nations, Father God. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Each week we respond to the teaching of God's Word.